Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the author of The Business of America is Lobbying, How Corporations Became Politicized and Politics Became More Corporate. The author of the book is Lee Drutman. The publisher is Oxford University Press. I hope that you enjoy this conversation that I had with Lee. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, I have the chance to talk today to Lee Drutman, who's the author of The Business of America is Lobbying, How Corporations Become Politicized and Politics Became More Corporate, published this year by Oxford University Press. Lee, how are you doing today? I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. you, uh, I've heard about this book uh, for a couple of years, and it's so nice to actually have it in my hands and to have read it. I hope that everybody else soon does the same. Uh, Before we get to the book, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you are now. where you've been in the past. Sure. Right now, I am a senior fellow at New America, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C., working in the political reform program here. Prior to that, I was at the Sunlight Foundation as a senior fellow for about three years, did a Ph.D. in political science from UC Berkeley. Wonderful. Um, you know, I, I sort of know some things about you and, and know your interests in all of these these issues of, of lobbying and, and how how these these um, things are, are counted. Um, you know, there have been a lot of good books on lobbying um, and, and a couple of them have been featured on the podcast. But your approach is different uh, than, than most of them. Um, you focused focus exclusively on corporate lobbying. Um, so, so what is corporate? Uh, what is a corporate lobbyist, and and why are they so important for us to better understand? Well, a, a corporate lobbyist is a lobbyist who works for a large or, or any sized corporation, really. But it's particularly the the large corporations that have become really the dominant actors in Washington now. And roughly eighty percent of all lobbying expenditures are corporate lobbying expenditures, either individual corporations or uh, associations. And so I, I think there's, there's certainly been a lot of books written about lobbying, but very few have been written about corporate lobbying, which seems surprising given that so much of the lobbying in Washington is on behalf of corporations. Now, I, I think um, most would be surprised by uh, the fact that this is a relatively new situation. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about when things began to shift in Washington and when corporate America awoke to the potential lobbying offered them. Uh, Sure. Well, if you went back to the 1960s, you would find actually relatively few corporations with Washington offices and corporate lobbying was pretty sparse, reactive, 
even the even the associations that were in Washington were not particularly particularly active. But starting in the early 1970s, a bunch of corporate CEOs were kind of in a state of panic because suddenly government had created a bunch of new regulatory agencies. The economy was stumbling. Inflation was increasingly a problem. And they really felt almost a, a sense of existential threat by what was happening in Washington. They formed the Business Roundtable. They rejuvenated the Chamber of Commerce. And a lot of companies hired lobbyists for the first time. And they really started paying attention to politics in the 1970s. And they started winning by the early 1980s. They had lowered their taxes. They had rolled back regulation. They had put cost-benefit analysis in the White House and just really changed the, the tenor of politics in Washington. Now, now, corporations aren't the only ones in the lobbying game. Uh, how does the amount that corporations spend on lobbying compare to the other big players like, like unions and, and issue groups who are also – uh, if you walk around Washington, you see all of those groups and, and, and the buildings that they, they work in. So give, give us a sense of the, the comparative role that corporations play. Right. Corporations dwarf everybody else pretty much. So you, you might think uh, about uh, this idea of, of, of countervailing power, a pluralist ideal that, that goes back to James Madison, in which faction counteracts faction and all equals out in the end, which is the, the sort of American ideal. But when you count up the numbers and you add up all the lobbying done by unions and all the lobbying done by groups that represent diffuse publics like citizens, consumers, you take, compare that against all the lobbying that corporations spend uh, all the all the amount that all the money that corporations spend on lobbying, you have one for every one dollar that unions and and public interest groups combined spend, corporations spend thirty four dollars. So it's a thirty four to one ratio. So that's not really faction counteracting faction. That's faction crowding out faction. And that ratio has been steadily increasing in in nineteen ninety eight, which is as far back as I have good data. That ratio was twenty two to one. So it's 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 really it's really one sided when it comes to now, the actual spending. This this would all seem to work to the benefit of corporations. I wonder if you could talk about whether you're arguing in the book that the corporations always get their way and that the corporate lobbyists always win. Is this the is this the the narrative of of uh, the way corporate lobbying works? Well. Uh, Politics is not a vending machine. It's it's not like you just put your 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 big dollar bills in and get your policy outcomes. Uh, actually, a lot of times corporations don't get what they want. Uh, often industries fight each other. Corporations fight each other. Har the truth is that hardly anything gets done affirmatively in Washington now. And part of that reason is that there is so much lobbying, so much competition for narrow uh, agenda space. On, on the other hand, to the extent that anything is going to get done, it almost always requires a, a large corporation or a set of large corporations to be pushing for that to get done. And also, a lot of what happens is that the status quo is maintained, and to the extent that a lot of corporations do quite well under the status quo, all this all this fighting to 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 no policy change is actually quite good for a lot of companies. Now, one of the parts that, uh, of the book that I really enjoyed was, was um, 
So your explanation of, of some of the differences between uh, an in-house corporate lobbyist and, and a lobbyist that might be hired uh, by a firm and, and how this isn't just sort of a trivial uh, issue. Um, and, and you talk about this in a chapter about the lobbyist challenges. Uh, what are some of those challenges? And, and I wonder if you can talk about how corporate lobbyists deal with them, because you have this very interesting point that you make about sort of corporate lobbying begets more corporate lobbying and, 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 and there is this sort of increasing returns. Would you talk about that that section of the book for us? Sure. Well, so corporations have headquarters wherever they are are headquartered, but they have lobbyists in Washington. Now, the lobbyists have an incentive in getting the corporations to continue to spend more money on lobbying. So to do that, they want to make sure that the, the managers appreciate the value that they are getting from having lobbyists in Washington. Now, in order to do this, lobbyists need to uh, feed back information to the companies that emphasizes all the opportunities, all the potential threats. But this can be part of it is it is is a challenge for lobbyists because often companies don't really understand how Washington works and they want things to be done very quickly. They don't understand that that there's a, a very slow process. They don't understand how much happens in coalitions. They don't understand. They, they really just don't understand politics. So it can be difficult for uh, a corporate CEO or VP far away to really understand what this investment in in lobbying is is yielding for the company. So lobbyists overcome this in part by spending a lot of time educating companies, uh, co company managers about the benefits of lobbying. They also focus on narrow uh, narrow gains that they can get for the individual companies, whether it's a government contract or, a, or some particular tax benefit or some, some subsidy. So there, there's a strong incentive for individual lobbyists to uh, generate very narrow benefits, which has fueled a certain particularism that is that is more and more the norm in corporate lobbying. So we've been talking about this primarily in, in, in abstract terms. I wonder if we can make this a little bit more specific. Um, is there a, a story that, that uh, you did some great interviews. Uh, is there a story that a lobbyist told you that um, without without naming names, uh, maybe just, uh, you know, so naming the the description of the story that that really um, uh, expresses what what the point is of uh, of your book. Is, is there something sticks out to you that uh, you might uh, sort of expand on some of these big ideas that you put forward? Sure, uh, and and I did interview a lot of lobbyists. I interviewed. 60 corporate lobbyists for, for this book, and it's it's full of, I, I think, a lot of fascinating quotes, and uh, I think that's one reason, uh, if, if not for my writing, then to uh, in, enjoy all the things that lobbyists had to say. But I think the, the sort of transformation, the uh, story of, of the growth of corporate lobbying is really the story of the, the transformation of lobbying from sparse and reactive to proactive, ambitious, even preemptive. So uh, there, there are two I'll share with you two quotes that I think uh, capture this story nicely. One from a lobbyist who said, and I'm quoting here, I think 20 years ago you had a Washington office to keep the government out of your business. And I think people have evolved to understand now that there are opportunities, partnerships with government, private 
Public partnerships are good. We don't want to be sort of business versus government. That doesn't work. We try to get out in front of issues. And uh, another quote that I, I particularly like that says something similar. Uh, the lobbyist said, 25 years ago, and I'm quoting here, 25 years ago, our companies were run by engineers, and it was just keep the government out of our business. We want to do what we want to do. And gradually that's changed to how can we make the government our partners? It's gone from leave us alone to let's work on this together. And if, if there's one line that I think summarizes the story, it's, it's that, quote, that it's gone from leave us alone to let's work on this together. Yeah, and, and in, in um, interviewing this, this many lobbyists, uh, what was it like to interview them? Were, were most of them willing to be interviewed? Um, were, they, were they candid? Were they um, introspective about the work they do? Were they critical at all about uh, uh, how, they, uh, how, how they pursue their line of work? Tell us a little bit about those interviews and where they took place and when they took place. Uh, well, they took place in, uh, mostly in their offices, some over the phone. I, d- I did these interviews in 2007, 2008. Eight. So some lobbyists didn't want to talk to me, but I think a lot of lobbyists feel that they've been unfairly cast as, as all like Jack Abramoff, which is uh, completely unfair, and that a lot of lobbyists really value the work that they do as, as professional public policy advocacy. They feel like they're the, one, they're the real ex- policy experts, and in many cases they, they really are and that they have an important role to play, and, and that the public has, has really maligned that role. And so I think a lot of them, or at least the ones who were willing to talk to me, were, were quite eager to talk about what they do. And I, I found them to be thoughtful, articulate, and, um, and sometimes, yes, introspective. Yeah, I've done interviews with lobbyists myself, and I, I've always been struck by very similar things that... Um, uh, you know, it may or may not be uh, always be true, but but the the sense of expertise that you get, um, and and this is not surprising because so many of them you know, have have worked on the other side of the issue before. Could you talk a little bit about that dimension of of corporate lobbying, which is the um, the, the movement in and out of government? Is this is this a part of the story that your book has to tell? Uh, certainly, this is colloquially referred to as as the revolving door, but Usually the the door tends to go one way, which is that you work on the Hill for a while, you get some real policy expertise, you start to understand how the process works, you build up a set of contacts, and then you realize that you're not being paid very well and you could double or triple your salary if you went to K Street. Uh, a great quote from, from a lobbyist uh, that captures this nicely says, and I'm quoting here, it's tough to live off the government paycheck. You make so little money. One of the things that's wrong with the system is that somebody finally learns to do their job, and then they have to move on. So you have a bunch of young folks who turn to lobbyists to figure out their jobs. And I think this is really an important part of the story, is that as the, uh, the amount of lobbying has increased and the number of jobs have increased, more and more talent has gone out of government and into lobbying, and most of those lobbyists represent private industry. So we more and more have a, a situation where government, and particularly in Congress, is relying on industry to tell them how to understand public policy. Now, you offer in your conclusion some, some uh, what I thought were clever policy 
proposals to, to address some of these um, these issues. Is there one of those proposals that you think has has even a slight hope for for a larger discussion, maybe passage at some some point? Is there is there one that you say, well, this is something that you know actually it, it would work, and and maybe there could be some traction behind it. Well, I do believe that simply investing in in government capacity is actually something that could have bipartisan support. I think conservatives even uh, are starting to realize that that they've cut off their ability to enact policy. Uh, we, we spend very little on, on, uh, on our, our, our legislative institutions when you think about how much lobbying there is. If, if there's uh, $2.6 billion a year in reported corporate lobbying, uh, but collectively the House and the Senate combined have a budget of $2 billion. Uh, we've seen a, actually a decrease in congressional committee staff since 1980, about a third fewer staff and key committee positions, which are really the most important policy positions. And I think, I, I, I really do believe that we could have a moment in which Congress reasserts itself and says, you know, we actually have to pay people more and hire more people if we're going to be a relevant institution. And we don't want to just have to rely on lobbyists to do our job. So I think that's actually something I, I even even Paul Ryan is now asking for more money for for his Ways and Means Committee. Uh, so I, I think that's there. There could be some real movement on that issue, and I think it would go a long way towards uh, reducing the influence of, of lobbyists. So this book is out, and I always like to ask people what what's next from them. Um, is there a, is there a, a new project on your table? You so you don't you don't have the the traditional academic job. So so what uh, is going to keep you busy at the new at, at New America? What's uh, is there another book that'll come? Well, there, there probably will be another book. I'm I'm exploring some ideas, but I, I I'm really trying to think now about about solutions, uh, about trying to to be realistic in in what kind of reforms we we might want to enact, and and thinking about what are what are the circumstances under which government works well to to enact general interest policies and and not be so reliant on a narrow set of corporate lobbyists. Uh, Lee's book, uh, which I really enjoyed, is The Business of America is Lobbying, How Corporations Became Politicized and Politics Became More Corporate, published this year by Oxford University Press. Lee, thank you very much for your time today. Hey, thanks for having me on the on the podcast, Heath. I'm a huge fan, and it's, it's a real thrill to, to be here with you. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.